Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda, Cities ABC, Open Business Council YouTube podcast series. We are here once again to continue profiling global thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and the people changing the world, the ones that create the moonshots and try to push forward new solutions for the problems we're solving and the problems we are actually facing, but as well trying to put a bit of a personal, I would say personal input and personal blood uh, in, the, in what we're doing. And uh, what we've been doing in this podcast series that we are actually very proud with our growth, but as well with the fantastic people we've been bringing here is to bring really wonderful people that have really a lot of capacity to change the world. That's the case today of our special guest, Luke Stokes, that is joining us from Puerto Rico. And um, just as an introduction, Luke Stokes is the managing director at the Foundation for Interwallet Operability and as well involved with foxyshard.com and co-founder of the EOS DAC Custodium. Uh, Luke is a citizen of the world that has been, of course, leading a work um, uh, quite important in the foundation for interwallet operability, which we're going to be talking today, which is key, especially for people that are using blockchain technology and wallets around the world, because most of the wallets don't speak with each other. And this is a key element. But he's as well uh, a personality that has been working in a lot of technology as well working with the likes of Brock Pierce in terms of technologies and solutions and actually well, working with countries and other things. And as well working with a lot of industry players trying to find solutions to solve the problems we're using in, in the early adoption of blockchain technology that is right now going mainstream, but we have a lot of stuff to do still. Uh, Brooke, um, Luke as well has been trying to look at this from a both technology and human perspective, which we're going to be talking today. So without more, and of course, we're going to put the bio and all the information about Luke uh, on the bottom below where you are here in our YouTube podcast series and whatever you find us in the internet. So Luke, welcome to our series. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So Luke, I want to start with, the. Uh, so now you're based in Puerto Rico and you have quite a broader technology business and, and um Acumen. But uh, tell us a bit about your background. How do you, first of all, end up in, in Puerto Rico? I, I think you are not from Puerto Rico, from your bio and other things, for sure. But as well, a bit of your uh, trajectory that made you come where we are now leading a very important organization and foundation. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I grew up uh, actually in Southern California. That's where I met my wife. Uh, we worked for uh, actually a, a nonprofit organization there. And they shut down the office there and started kind of merged it with an office in Nashville, Tennessee. So it was kind of the last place we expected to move, my wife, Karina and I, but we figured, well, either we both have to find a new job or let's go ahead and try out Nashville. So we planned to stay for a few years in Nashville and the, the city kind of grew on us. We ended up staying almost 13 years. Uh, we raised three kids together. They're now eight, 10 and 12. And it's kind of through that process, eventually found out about Bitcoin in 2013, got very excited about, and, and I was in the payment space with uh, FoxyCart, which is now Foxy.io, a company that I co-founded with a good friend of mine. We built that for about 10 years. So I was very familiar with the payment space. And as I kind of, you know, found out about Bitcoin and, and kind of contrasted it with the central bank digital, you know, system of currency and fiat currency, kind of got very excited about its potential. And eventually kind of got to the point where I was like, well, if you can have, you know, money without government, currency without government, you know, what other things can you have without government? And really got interested in the uh, kind of anarcho-capitalist or voluntarist. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, no rulers, not no rules, and, and got interested in, in human organization that can be done in different ways. 
And eventually kind of got to the point where I was like, you know, I don't know that I want to continue funding uh, what I see as the military industrial complex on a, on a you know, global level, you know, thinking of like Smedley Butler, wars, a racket, that kind of stuff. So I remember talking to my wife saying we should we should consider renouncing citizenship and moving to, you know, some other country. So I don't have to support the, you know, the largest military in the world. And she was kind of like, yeah, no, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. And so I started exploring whether what are the other options available to me? And a good friend of mine, Sean King, uh, moved here to Puerto Rico a year before we did. And he said, hey, we're moving to Puerto Rico and you should come. And I remember replying to him on a Facebook chat saying, yes, I'm going to. And a year later, we did. There's a great tax incentives here. So I don't have to participate in the federal tax system with my capital gains and things of that nature. But beyond that, it's just an amazing, beautiful island, incredible people, incredible culture. Uh, there's a growing uh, crypto community here as well. Who have a similar vision to kind of help create a world we all want to live in using this technology. So yeah, I kind of just found myself stumbling into this and now it's been uh, over three years now and uh, we love it. It's a fantastic place to be. Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, and I know because I have quite a lot of uh, acknowledged people and friends over there. So, so in terms of your um, background, and you mentioned a couple of the companies that you've been working, especially um, FoxyCart, which uh, is an interesting case study as well, and the co-founder of EOSDAC Custodian. So can you tell us a bit um, the, from the technology trajectory that you've been going until you went to, found, to the Internet Wallet Operability Foundation? A bit of this kind of technological trajectory, especially in the way you've been seeing the evolving part of financial and payments, which is a key element in the world economy and still very tricky, let's put it that way. So I would like to hear a bit from your both your entrepreneur hat and as well your technology hat. Yeah, definitely. I, I majored in computer science at the University of Pennsylvania. I started building websites actually towards the end of high school. So I, uh, I was 1996 actually building my first website. So I got to see the whole dot-com kind of rise and fall uh, during the, the dot-com era. And kind of through that love of technology, eventually got to the point where uh, my friend invited me to help build a shopping cart. And I said, well, I've, you know, I've built shopping carts before. How hard could it be? And I, for months, we'd go back and forth and say, well, what about this one? What about this one? And he was running an yeah, e-commerce uh, or actually more of just a development shop, but needing e-commerce. And eventually he convinced me that every other product in the space, you know, back in 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, didn't meet his needs. So we started building uh, out together a project that I thought would be a weekend project and it ended up taking about 10 years. <laughs> and we built a, a custom e-commerce solution. And the idea being, instead of just having a separate website for your e-commerce and a separate website for your marketing, what about bringing your e-commerce directly to your marketing with a very seamless experience? And so we did that, um, and you know we never we bootstraps. We never raised any funding, uh, and we had a, a lot of fun just basically building a lifestyle business. We had a very small team, but it was fully remote. So I was immediately exposed to kind of the remote team building. You know, back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, kind of recognizing like with the technology today, we don't need to have an office. So we never really did have an office, and I think that kind of set the stage for my passion for decentralized autonomous communities, decentralized autonomous organization, DACs and DAOs, and I got thinking about you know, that kind of framework with worker proposals and the way you can hire people from anywhere in the world. You can pay them with cryptocurrency from to anywhere in the world. And in uh, 2013, I really got excited about Bitcoin. I think my first purchase of Bitcoin, I spent $50 and I got two and a half Bitcoin. So they were 20 bucks a piece. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty good deal. And I, I got pretty excited about it. And I was uh, tweeting about it quite a bit in 2013, blogging about it on our platform, trying to get our stores. We've got thousands of you know, stores now at the e-commerce platform saying, why don't you accept Bitcoin as a payment option? And we integrate with BitPay. 
Uh, there was a Bitcoin wiki entry, it actually still is for FoxyCart then. And what we quickly found out is it was just too difficult. People were kind of like, what is Bitcoin? And what is this big, crazy hash? And like, you know, they, we were seeing very small number of stores be interested in it. And, you know, if they had, they'd all be, they all would have made a lot of money <laughs> if they had accepted the currency and held it. But really just the user confusion um, leading to cart abandonment, you know, the different uh, checkout rates going down because people would see something and be interested and go research it and, and forget about their purchase. So it just wasn't quite there yet. Uh, and then later in 2014, 2015, the block size debates within the Bitcoin community were quite frustrating. There's a lot of censorship going on on the Reddit a lot of censorship going on with the bitcointalk.org, which is kind of the only place you could get information about Bitcoin back then, which led to, of course, the big fork between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Now there are different narratives as to whether Bitcoin is a store of value or whether you know it should be peer-to-peer -peer digital cash like it was uh, originally intended. And through a kind of all that discussion, I got a little disillusioned with it. And around 2016, I found out about the Steemit platform. And Steam is a blockchain now called Hive, and that's a whole nother story, uh, where you could blog on a blockchain. You could actually take your content, put it on a blockchain, and it'd be immutable, censorship resistant there forever, and you would earn cryptocurrency. Um, I got my wife invited, you know, got her excited to do it. She was doing photography, things like that. She actually converted some of her steam into Bitcoin, bought a GYFT card for Amazon and then bought a camera lens. So she was like, oh, this weird crypto digital thing you're doing. It's real. Look, I have a camera lens, you know, and the ability for an everyday person like my wife to be able to use cryptocurrency in a blockchain was very appealing to me. And the human readable addresses on that blockchain also, along with BitShares and eventually EOS, you know, trying to make it more user friendly. Uh, I was very passionate about uh, eventually got recruited to uh, be a block producer there, what they call a witness. And then through that whole process, uh, there was a moment where the Steam blockchain itself basically got Sybil attacked, which means one person pretending to be multiple accounts that took over the chain uh, through a combination of interesting stories, lies, deceit, and everything else you could throw into that. It should be made into a movie at some point. I remember sitting, uh, woken up one morning and I got a notification on my phone and it's like, oh, my, my seed node, my backup node, and my main producer node, they all went down. That's a chain failure. What's going on? And I look and see that the chain had been taken over. So the community moved over to the Hive blockchain. We basically took a snapshot of everything, created a new community, uh, excluding uh, accounts that attacked the network. And uh, that, that community has been thriving and doing well since then. And, and also I got uh, recruited to help with the launch of the EOS network as a block producer there. EOS also being delegated proof of stake uh, consensus, which is similar to um, the mechanisms of the BitShares and Hive uh, that Dan Larimer created. And so I'm, again, just passionate about tech that actually works, pragmatically things that can be built on top of it. I'm very passionate about DAX and DAOs as far as new governance models for companies, nonprofits, even governments. And these governance models have to make participation easy. So the user experience has to be easy as well as the, you know, the barrier to entries for, for, as far as like costs. So a lot of the Ethereum transactions, for example, were very expensive. So if people have to pay money to vote or participate in governance, then that's a big hindrance to adoption. So these are all things that have led me to the projects that I've worked on and then eventually into working with FIO, the, the FIO protocol, FIO, the Foundation for Inner Wallet Operability, which we're, we're focusing, on, focusing on making crypto easier, it's easier to send, easier to request funds and receive funds, the ability to include a memo, because we would always say, be your own bank, but you know, a bank gives you a bank statement. You have this nice understanding of everything you've been doing within your account. Whereas with cryptocurrency, you have wallets all over the place and you have different accounts doing different things and it can be very confusing to keep track of things. And now we have the ability with FIO protocol to have a, you know, a memo that's encrypted between the two parties. So we preserve that privacy 
but you still have the ability to know, what was that transaction for? What was this about? And I've been working there. I started as a part-time consultant after selling my, my business, Foxycart, back to my business partner in 2018 to go full-time in the crypto blockchain space. Uh, I didn't really want another job. That was the funny part. I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I just want to be part-time consulting, advising, you know, helping out with cool projects. And, and this one kind of sucked me in. I started as a part-time consultant. I was the chief decentralization officer. And eventually over time kind of got dragged into full-time position as a managing director for the Cayman nonprofit. And uh, it, it's an interesting story how this protocol came about because there was a normal traditional company with a traditional raise called Dapix. And they kind of built out the technology, built out the, the IP. And then a Cayman nonprofit with a fully decentralized group of block producers familiar with delegated proof of stake from Hive and EOS and other networks uh, took that software, purchased it through the Cayman Foundation and launched the chain. So it is kind of a, a decentralized autonomous consortia is the way it runs today uh, with, without the traditional centralized. So I didn't actually found it. I came as a part-time consultant, but then eventually kind of moved into the position of the managing director that I have today. So that's kind of a long uh, story of my life compressed in just a few minutes. But uh, yeah, the, basically the summary is I, I'm really passionate about building tools for human freedom. And I'm really passionate about self-sovereignty and the ability to control your own value and making that easy for everyone and accessible. You mentioned uh, earlier a billion users come into crypto. I, I'm really passionate about that. The law of diffusion of innovation talks about these doublings of network effect adoptions like we saw with the internet and the smartphone. And the information I've seen is that the curve is even faster than it was on the internet. So we're probably three to five years out from a billion users in cryptocurrency. And to me, that immediately says we have to make it easier. You know, that the law of diffusion of innovation uh, talks about those kind of early 2.5% that are kind of like innovator tinkers. And then you have the early majority, you know, the majority, late majority, all that. And so I think the people coming to crypto have much higher expectations of how easy it should be to use. I remember mentioning that to Brock actually at NYC NFT. And he said, Luke, I know you talk about, you know, about three to five years. He's like, I'm thinking more 12 to 18 months, which is kind of uh, optimistic to me, but who knows, you know, this is all the things we're trying to help with. Cause I think the companies that focus on usability percentage wise, focus on the people that are coming. That's a much larger number than the people that are in it today. And those people have higher expectations. So yeah, that's kind of a summary of what I'm into and passionate about. I really think that if you build technology that doesn't help a human being, then what's the point? So we really need to focus on the user and the user experience uh, as far as what we do. No, amazing. And I think it's, uh, I love your vision and I think we share it as well in this series and with all the things we're doing. So one question, I think, especially for people listening to us, I think most of my audience knows what is a DAO and governance solutions. I think for the ones that don't know what DAO is, the centralized autonomous organization that creates solutions in terms of technology for governance, in terms of communities and different areas, eventually even governments in the future and other things. But uh, so one of the things, so picking in what you said, so you spoke about DAOs, governance solutions, and rethinking, rethinking human coordination that is focused around intrinsic motivation, flow, dharma, and the like, and not based on extrinsic motivations like rewards, punishment, and threats. Um, so I would like to touch this because it's not easy, okay? Even me, I probably lose my temper a lot with my team and so forth because you want to get things done. And, and normally one thing I learned as well is that most of the people just go with the flow. So I want to ask this specifically because at the moment we have in the world two kinds of models, centralized and decentralized models. And the two models are 
going and i think if for people listening to us that probably read the book this the star the starfish or the spider and the starfish you have the two models and i think the the oldest models is like the the moican indians um and then for instance you have of course the alcoholic anonymous that are kind of known known decentralized organization or even wikipedia and then of course you have the spider which is the world economy so how can we kind of look at this because this comes as well with the First of all, the sense of governance, the sense of leadership, and the sense of technology, because of course, right now we have to do this, but we are dealing with machines as well. So it's a, it's a big question, but I know that you are a thinker as well. I would like to hear how do you see this? Yes, I, it's my favorite topic to discuss. You know, where's the future of humanity going, and how are we going to get there? You know, and I love uh, talking about DAOs and DACs. I, I talk about them as a group of people with a shared goal. And when we talk about D, you know, DAO, Decentralized doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that's on a spectrum, basically. So one way to define it would be no single point of failure. And there's a great article by Vitalik where he even defines it in more detail. What, you know, how decentralizes your technology and access to the technology as far as making changes to it. How decentralizes the community and those who make decisions. How decentralizes the financial backing, the currencies, things of that nature, you know, as far as token distribution. Um, so decentralization to me is just no single point of failure. Autonomous doesn't yet today mean AIs. Uh, it really actually means just transparency, consistency, functional outcomes with functional in inputs, meaning um, you put in this information and you're going to get this consistent output with this input. Uh, and, and, and a contrast to that would be you don't have like a separate set of financial books that Enron's keeping on the side and leads to some big fraud. You know, everything is transparent. Everything is available. Everything is uh, consistent with the smart contracts on the blockchain, the process for governance, uh, everything like of that nature. And then as far as the C or O, whether it's a DAC or a DAO, this can be community, consortia, company, corporation, or it can be organization. It's really kind of, again, just a group of people with a shared goal. And I do get really excited about this because I think it goes much deeper than you know, just this kind of evolution of technology, I think it also goes to the evolution of our awareness, our consciousness. Like as a species, we're in many ways kind of waking up to certain realities that we live in, in terms of how we treat mother earth that we live in or how we um, treat each other and, and whether or not we, we feel the need to rule over each other or let people kind of grow autonomously in their own uh, ability and there's a, their own freedom. And it's been it's been really an interesting journey for me. I mean, I've been very passionate about these tools for quite some time. And at the same time, recognizing this is kind of more recent that some people want to be ruled. Some people want to be told what to do. Some humans are more comfortable without the you know decision fatigue and everything else, or the loss aversion of making a mistake and feeling ten times worse about it than if they you know just did what you know just just following orders kind of a thing. And so these are part of the the things that draw my interest and attention is like what what leads to a better outcome, increasing the ability to function, as, as my friend Ares Asher likes to say, and and at the same time you know, recognizes where we are. And, and so that's where the usability, making things easier, and it's a combination of kind of leveling up, but also at the same time, you know, helping people, making things easier so it's accessible. And so I think probably the, the DAOs and DACs that are going to be more successful in the future aren't going to even really talk about or be upfront about their blockchain nature. They're just going to be better tools for co-ops or better tools for nonprofits or better tools for people to come together, make decisions, uh, you know, ha pool their funds together in a, in a what we call a multi-sig, which is essentially multiple people have access to the funds, but they have to come to a certain level of agreement before those funds can be transferred to be used in any way that the group wants in a shared collaborative commons kind of way. And, uh, you know, I think little improvements like that, being able to have transparency, 
on how funds and group funds are used and, and agreement, consensus, a way to vote in who are the custodians or who are the decision makers for those funds. I think these things are going to become more and more important, especially as people I find you know throughout the world, especially with what's been going on with COVID and other different examples, people are kind of losing faith in some of the traditional systems of authority and governance saying, you know, you don't have all the answers. We kind of have to figure things out on our own to some degree. And so I, I look uh, really fondly at the opportunity for us to create better systems of awareness of what is and who we are and our place in the world and how we come together to uh, to build a better outcome. So th- these technologies, I think, are showing up just at the right time, just when we need them most. And it is important that we make them uh, user friendly and, and accessible. No, completely. And I think there's a lot of uh, challenges on that. So that brings me to the next question. And there's there's a let's go through first. The first question is related more on the industry and the second more on the humanity part because i want to touch that and i know that you are as well a person very focused on humanity challenges so the first one so so this is kind of you touch this uh, partly but i want to go more in detail so according to research from multiple industry players but as well crypto.com uh, is that in 2021 the number of global crypto owners almost tripled from 106 million in january to 295 million in december and if we extrapolate a similar rate in 2022, that means that we are on the track to reach 1 billion users. Of course, it might be too advanced or might be less because, of course, there's always the the theory of, uh, um, I would say, that this can extrapolate very big. And if you look at uh, the technology and, of course, depends a lot of marketing and things around this. And, of course, we have on Crypto.com or other platforms right now, we have even people like Matt Damon, global superstars and premium A-League actors being promoting some of these platforms. Or even uh, uh, there was another platform by um, other global personalities. So uh, the first thing that I, my question around this is as someone very involved both in the industry and in the crypto, but as well on the technology, a lot of these things is about building, like you said, the utility, UI, UX, usability, and really solutions that solve problems. Because effectively, if you are in Venezuela or Argentina or in Africa, or even in other emerging markets, crypto is much more important than if you are in a premium market where you don't really need, you don't have so much risks. So um, as someone that is trying to create this interoperability within uh, wallets, what do you think it's the most important thing that we need to do, create a truly, first of all, internet of trust, and to make this technology speak with each other, which is very similar to when the internet was created because it started no, not immediately with the billions of users that we have now. Yeah, one of the examples we use, analogies we use often with FIO is the HTTP protocol, Hypertext Transfer Protocol. You had the, the internet, which is kind of a mix of a bunch of different protocols from FTP to finger to gopher to who knows, whatever else. And once the HTTP protocol came about, you had this user experience of the World Wide Web, the web browser. You had a clickable interface that made sense. And we did see a huge spike in adoption of usage of the internet once we had that protocol. And I, we look at the FIO protocol as a similar way to provide a user experience for all of crypto. So it doesn't matter which token or which chain, uh, you, you don't have to deal with the big crazy hash addresses that are confusing. If you get one character wrong, you you know you lose your money or you, you have no way of, you said back to trust, you have no way of knowing when somebody messages you a Bitcoin address, you're like, okay, was there a man in the middle attack? Meaning someone got in between that message, swapped out the intended Bitcoin address with their own attacker's Bitcoin address, and then you send to the wrong person. So you see people sending a test send, okay, I sent you a little bit, did you get it? And you got to wait for six confirmations or whatever it might be on different blockchains. And so that just adds confusion and 
stress really. It's not enjoyable and fun to work with crypto when you're afraid you might lose your money at any moment because you send it to the wrong address. And we did a usability study in 2018 where this was unfortunately very common, the people losing funds, uh, sending to the incorrect address or messing up a transaction in some way. So FIO is very simply a couple different features, a, a human readable crypto handle, such as Luke at Stokes in two parts, a domain part and a username part. And the, the reason we have that separated is that you have you know, full ability to create your own brands without any name collisions. So you can pretty much get any address that you want. I have Luke at Stokes. I registered the Stokes domain so I can give those addresses to my family. And I've set it as a private domain in this case. So I'm the only one as the, it's essentially an NFT. I'm the only one as the private key holder of that NFT that can register crypto handles on that uh, domain. And so with that crypto handle, I can then map a Bitcoin address, a Ethereum address, and that way, if anyone wants to send me cryptocurrency, if they're in a FIO enabled wallet, and we have, I think, 30 to 40 different wallets and exchanges, there are many more in MOU uh, stage where instead of placing a Bitcoin address or scanning a QR code that's unencrypted and again, might have a man in mill attack, I can just send Bitcoin to Lucat Stokes. The wallet does a lookup on the FIO chain, grabs the correct Bitcoin address, and then sends Bitcoin natively to me, just like uh, it would even if FIO wasn't involved. And then additionally, I can request funds from someone. And this is what we actually today, as we're recording this, I just finished paying the team for the month. Uh, we use FIO requests as well internally, where you can request funds from someone with the exact chain code, the exact token code, and a memo explaining exactly you know, how much, you know, what, what it was about and the amount that you want to, be, uh, you want to receive. And that's important, I think, because um, again, USDT is an example. USDT is a stable coin that lives on many different chains. And it's very, it's not all that uncommon for someone to accidentally send a USDT to like a Bitcoin or a smart, you know, Binance smart chain address instead of an Ethereum address or a Polygon address instead of Ethereum address or an EOS address, you know, and, and there are Tron addresses and so it can be very confusing or the Omni layer and all that complexity should really just be hidden from the user and make it more accessible, more user-friendly. And so that's what we're trying to do with that user experience so that you don't have to worry about you know, the underlying details, like we're connected on this video call, but I don't know if web sockets are being used or there's some streaming video compression protocol or whatever. It just, I just want the user experience. And that's one of the things that I think is also really important when we think about where things are going on that scale of decentralization versus centralization, uh, central bank digital currencies, as an example. I have big concerns about this because people think, oh, that's digital currencies like Bitcoin, right? I'll just use that. They get a new update on their banking app from their central bank, you know, controlled bank. And they think, oh, it's all good. But they don't realize that that could be a tool to control how they use their own funds. It could be a tool for tracking them much more so than the dollar. And one, one of the reasons I think people will flock to those technologies is they'll be cheap, fast and easy to use because they're centralized. So I'm hoping to provide a self-sovereign, decentralized way to have that great experience without sacrificing uh, something like decentralization. So uh, I think it is pretty important. And, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of users coming to crypto and it's, I think people don't have a mechanism in their brain to recognize exponential growth. It happens very quickly, catches them off guard, but we can look throughout history and see how many other times this has happened. So it's kind of inevitable. And so my focus is helping companies recognize if you're not, if you don't have a strategy for usability, you really should focus on that because these users that are coming, they're going to flock to whatever tools are easy to use. And again, I don't want us to start sacrificing the core ethos of why this entire ecosystem exists. You know, the, uh, the, the principles, you know, like the cypherpunk manifesto and other things that led into the creation of Bitcoin, the principles of having self-sovereign control of your own value, the censorship resistance, the ability to communicate, 
um, these things are really important for freedom and for humanity. And so I don't want to sacrifice those as we move forward for the sake of usability. And so that's why these protocols and others like it, I think are important. Yeah, uh, you're completely right. And I think this is kind of a big challenge because, and I think I know that we have limited time to talk. I have more, a lot of more questions, but I think my probably last question. Um, so you, you touch NFTs, you touch as well, a lot of innovation that is coming out of these things. So we have in one end, the DAOs and the centralized and decentralized technologies, but we have to be realistic that I would say 90% of the world economy, not to say 99, is highly centralized. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say we have a bit of the, the vision and the utopia, and actually we have already technology, but then is about how to scale this. So from the standpoint right now that we have, uh, for instance, the NFTs is a great example where suddenly this become a $20 billion ecosystem. Um, we have as well the metaverse that is right now 30 billion with potential to go to 5 billion, 5 trillion actually, or 2 mm-hmm. trillion, something like that. So the question for you is how do you see, especially as a humanist, which I think it's what I'm here in your words, um, and as well someone very interested in creating a human part, and you mentioned uh, as well in our special, on our personal uh, uh, talks about your focus on on meditation and as well as so a conscious a conscious that we have to bring to technology and even to our lives how do you see coping with this kind of challenge that we're facing because there's a lot of challenge definitely and i think it's going to be bigger because of course if you look that mostly what happened in the internet is that it was as well a utopia in the sense of that we would create something really to empower technology and tim Lee, one of the founders and fathers uh, is actually probably and now we end up actually having an internet highly uh, used by big corporations that take control of the world economy. And actually, right now, the irony is that some of these corporations, you mentioned the the cyber manifesto, cyberpunk, but in the end of the day, it's kind of we have a kind of a Blade Runner world, uh, and it's not in the future; it's now. So, how do you see this? And as well, some of your notes about the NFT revolution and the metaverse. And how can we use this to a more positive environment? Let's, as my last question. It's a great expansive question. Yes. Uh, it touches <laughs> on all many things. I really enjoy it. Uh, we, could, we could spend a few minutes talking about it for sure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, NFTs. Uh, there's an interesting project called uh, Materium, Materium, where they basically are thinking about if you take all this locked up value and basically giving a digital passport, giving it an NFT, a physical item. So you could create a rule sets and have DAOs managing it. Uh, an example in that project, I thought was interesting where they could take like a, a Stradivarius violin and say, this violin has to have three concerts a year. And one of them needs to be for charity. And they could actually keep track of whether or not that contract was honored as it moves throughout different jurisdictions in physical space. So there's some really interesting ideas about, you know, obviously fractional, fractionalized uh, property and how you can actually kind of free up liquidity for people that instead of just owning one home, you might want to rent and have exposure to a thousand homes in many different jurisdictions and locations, uh, you know, just like you'd want to have a different expansive investment portfolio and, and just so many different interesting things that you can do once you start tokenizing. Um, a big part of it and the big concern that I have uh, comes in, in actually two parts. One, we touched on briefly about trust and building a network of trust. I think that relates to um, for example, uh, FIA protocol has a, 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 an ability to sign your NFTs. So as an author, as a creator of an NFT, I could take my human readable address, Luke at Stokes, for example, and I can cryptographically prove that I created that. And that's really important because a lot of times you hear about like a, a Beeple JPEG worth you know millions of dollars, somebody could just take that image, 
redeploy it on a different contract on a different chain and claim to be that artist. And other people will be scammed by that fraud. And I think that's really terrible considering the entire point of this is these are cryptographic entities, but that can happen because of the lack of usability. So now with like unique.one is the first platform to integrate FIO NFT signatures, we have the ability for artists to come in and say, hey, I'm gonna sign it and it's human readable. And no matter where it goes on the internet, you can check my entire collection and say, if, if it's not signed by my user handle that you can easily see, then it's not actually a uh, legitimate, just like they sign their art today. So I think that's a big important part of trust. And that goes along with that, another one that's very interesting and concerning and will certainly have a major place to play in the metaverse is digital identity. And this is a topic that I just, I can't get away from. It keeps coming into my consciousness. It keeps coming into my relationships. Um, there's some really interesting projects like keychain.org where they're trying to solve this problem without creating a totalitarian nightmare. And this is another part that's near and dear to my heart. If we start, and I'm reminded often, for example, that you know uh, IBM was a company that provided the machines that provided the you know barcode numbers that went on all the Holocaust victims, you know, like in and and so like we have to be very careful about how we implement this technology and how it's used. And if we, for example, create these kind of you know uh, motivational economic systems where it's like if you do what we want you to do, then you can live, then you can have food, then you can purchase, you know, with the, your funds and things of that nature, that creates a very dystopian reality. And so we have to be extremely careful, I think, on how we use these technologies for digital identity, how we ensure privacy, self-sovereignty, all these kind of things. And at the same time, recognize that these are amazing tools for freedom and liberty. And, and we think about, for example, corruption in government, corruption in nonprofits, corruption in corporations, whereas we can actually use this transparency that a blockchain provides to our benefit as well, saying individual privacy, but group transparency, meaning if a group is going to move in a certain direction, they, they're going to be very transparent about what are they using their funds for? Where are they getting those funds? I do think that's beneficial. So it's this kind of mix between the need for full encrypted privacy and full radical transparency and, and finding ourselves in that mix as we're moving forward as a species and thinking about for example, another interesting aspect of the transparency is the a blockchain, anything on a blockchain is public, anything on a blockchain is accessible. And so you have the opportunity, for example, to as we develop future AIs to make better decisions about what we're doing. Analogy I like to use is kind of fun. Let's say you go to a restaurant and they're like, well, you can use this butter or you can use this butter and this butter costs 17 cents more. But if you use this butter, it costs 17 cents more. You're going to save some village in Africa you've never heard of because of some butterfly effect all the way through the world that, you know, this was more sustainably uh, manufactured. I think most decent human beings would be like, I'll pay the extra 17 cents for that different butter on my bread, you know, and, and I think AI and the ability to have these open data sets of DAX and DAOs where the decision making is known and we can start learning from our mistakes within those environments. Uh, creates a lot more signal as opposed to noise. A lot of the government institutions today are full of corruption and politicking and revolving door politics and regulatory capture. These things create so much noise that it's hard to make decisions on. Is that Are we moving forward? Was that a good decision or a bad decision? Will we do that same thing again or not? And so I'm very excited about where we're going. Uh, I think we have to level up our awareness as individuals and as communities and species to recognize like these are all tools for recognizing what is 
and being able to manipulate the world around us in ways that are beneficial to us and hopefully our environment as well. That's essentially what technology is. And so thinking through uh, from that standpoint of personal responsibility, uh, I think is really important. And I just want to thank you and your team for getting these conversations out there. I think they're really important, educating people, helping people understand what's coming because uh, it's going to be an exciting wild ride. Thank you so much, Luke. I know that you have to go. There's a lot of more questions, but I'm sure we're going to have a take two of this. Uh, congratulations on the work on Theo. Uh, I think everyone listening to us, please go to the, as well, your Twitter account where you're doing fantastic work and LinkedIn. And we're going to put all these lists. And I think especially, I hope you are very successful because for me, I, I'm one of the ones that want to use Theo and all the success of that, but as well, keep discussing these ideas and educating and as well, being part of this, because like you said, the DAO is about us being part of this and making it happen because we have more decision than sometimes we all think. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for having me. I look forward to a future conversation.